Welcome to episode number 24 of Wait, What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee. This is the podcast that takes a somewhat unique look at the business of sports, sometimes irreverent, sometimes cynical, and on occasion, even serious. I'm your co-host, David Paro. And I'm Tim McGee. I hope everyone had a great long weekend celebrating Father's Day and Juneteenth. Tim, happy belated Father's Day to you. Same to you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Before I turn it over to you, I want to give this show's uh, first shout out to Title IX. It's hard to believe that this week is the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which, of course, is the landmark legislation designed to engender equality between the genders. And sports is definitely where it's had its most visible impact. So we're going to have a lot more to discuss about Title IX during our guest segment. But I felt that the 50th anniversary of this civil rights law certainly should be highlighted. But now I'm going to turn it over to you and see what's on your mind, Tim. Well, let's keep on that topic for just a second. I, As you know, I teach a course at St. John's University in New York, and um, I've taught a number of different courses over the uh, my, my, uh, my time at the university, one of which is called Current Issues in Sports, where we t- look at topics like uh, racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, um, social justice issues, and things like that. And Wait, what, it does sound like the John Lennon song, Give Peace a Chance, no? A little <laughs> bit? All right. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay. Uh, when's that next train of thought coming into the table? <laughs> uh, so one of the things I talk about in my class is the fact that, you know, Title IX basically took a generation to really have its impact start to be felt, right? So signed in 1972 into, into law. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Title IX says that any institution getting federal aid had to um, assure equity, gender equity um, in athletic and academic settings. So you fast forward 25 years um, to, uh, to 1997, and right around that time, you have two watershed moments in sports here in America and women's sports in particular, but you have the founding of the NBA, WNBA, excuse me, and then you have the first uh, World Cup championship uh, or the great World Cup championship by the women's national team um, capped off by uh, Brandy Chastain's uh, iconic goal in the Rose Bowl uh, in, in uh, Pasadena. So it took that long for it to start to feel the impact. And now we're on to the next generation, right, 50 years out. And, you know, we're going to talk to our guest later about um, the great strides women's sports have made here in, in the U.S. and globally. So, you know, I saw this past week that the twi- uh, Spanish women's national team, uh, you know, in the Spain men's team is obviously one of the most highly regarded, most decorated uh, national teams in the world. Um, the women's team just gained um, uh, equal bonus pay for the next five years. So, again, we're not just seeing this move towards equity in the U.S., we're seeing it globally, which I think is fantastic. You know, you look at the sheer numbers of people that are participating, women, girls that are participating in in athletics. And when the legislation was signed, I've seen that around 30,000 women competed in college sports here in the U.S. While in 2019, so this has probably even expanded since then, that number was approaching 200,000. So the access to, um, to the opportunities obviously has resulted in more, more people playing. 
Um, it's not that women's sports were non-existent then, but they certainly weren't on the um, uh, on the same balance. So um, this has and and one of the interesting things, of course, is at the time the NCAA was was fighting it. Um, but I think you know now that it is it is proven to be something of a huge success for the NCAA. Um, so another very interesting stat I saw came out of Ernst and Young actually that 94% of women that hold C-suite positions are former athletes. Wow. And 52% of them actually played at the collegiate level. So that says something, you know, we've talked on this show and we, as people that have played sports uh, and have had children that have played sports, certainly understand the concept of what it means to be on a on a team and what it what it can do for you in terms of leadership skills, in terms of teamwork, uh, in terms of discipline. And I think this is a, this stat just so clearly states that, and has helped not just in terms of giving access to girls and women playing sports, but obviously had some impact in the boardroom as well. Yeah, that is a that's a fascinating stat, and, and what's even more fascinating is is you actually do research before we do these podcasts <laughs> while I sort of fly by the scene of my team. Well, um, well, you know. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be an episode of Wait What we, um, we, without us talking about either the commanders or Live Golf. So uh, so Live Golf, another uh, fairly big name uh, from the PGA Tour has defected, Brooks Kepka. Yeah, that's a big one. That's a, re- that's a really big one. Yeah, that's, a, that's another player who is uh, closer to the – you know, peak of his career than the end of his career. Uh, no doubt. Uh, he's, he also is somebody that has said he only cares about the majors. Um, and apparently he also said, and, and, and making life hard for Bryce and DeChambeau. So, uh, you know, what, what, ha- what happens if the majors um, decide not to let these players compete? Well, that's, that's we the big weekend. thing. Yeah. We saw this past weekend. It didn't seem to make a difference. Um, none of the live golf guys did particularly well and, and Phil, uh, didn't even make the cut. I don't think that has anything to do with him being, uh, a member of the live golf tour. It has everything to do with him being a 52 year old golfer playing a very difficult course and in tough conditions. Well, I think DJ, uh, Dustin Johnson was the highest ranked player, um, at the open and he didn't finish, you know, in, in contention. So he wasn't covered well at. It did seem that NBC seemed to make sure that they weren't covering these guys too much. And they didn't really talk about it. They took a very different tack than uh, last week's Canadian Open, which is a regular PGA Tour event, unlike the USGA-run US Open. But yeah, no, this is a big get. Kepka, you know, his brother's already uh, been playing on the tour, on the Live Golf. Uh, he had committed. And the DeChambeau thing is kind of funny and interesting, and maybe that's a, something that Live Golf thinks they could uh, could really play up. Listen, I think there's two potential directions of this thing at this point. One is they're going to Monahan and the tour, along with the DP World Tour, are going to have to make some piece with this and try to make it just what it is right now, which is an exhibition tour. Um, the problem with that, of course, is that the tour can't compete with the money. And if Live Golf expands, which I believe is their intent, so anybody saying that they're not looking to compete with the PGA Tour, which is the Norman standard line, I think is full of it. I think they're lying. I think they're just saying that just to, to get the players now and not have, uh, have the tour um, basically suspend the players from participation in the PGA Tour. And the other thing is to convince the majors, which would be the USGA, of course, for next year, 
the PGA of America for the PGA Championship, um, Augusta National and the Masters and the RNA for the Open Championship to not have these people play and to make sure that the rankings, uh, the world rankings, uh, uh, are not affected at all by Live Golf Tournament. Those are the things that would have to happen. In that case, I think then the players that have defected then start worrying seriously. But if those things don't happen, um, I think Jay Monahan and the tour are in a bit of a tough situation and are going to have to uh, do something that I know they don't want to do. So we'll see what happens. This is actually a big week. I think we'll be hearing a lot of things uh, out of Monahan and the tour um, uh, based on meetings that they're having as we Yeah, they've painted, they've painted themselves into a corner. It'll be interesting to see how they get themselves out. Right. And if they even choose to, Right. Right. Correct. Correct. But, you know, the money I Max Helma, who listeners out there, if you want to follow someone pretty funny on the tour, Max Helma is a good one to follow. He had a nice little bit on Twitter that I saw. Here's his exchange. He says, here's how I imagine the 54 tour negotiates with players. He doesn't call it live golf. He calls (laughs) it the 54 tour. And then he says, 54, we'll offer you 100. We'll offer you 10 million. The player then says, not interested. The live tour says, okay, how about 100 mil? Player says, wait, are you serious? And then the live tour says, okay, make it 200 million. And then the player says, deal, it's a deal. Basically saying that he doesn't think the negotiations are all that hard for the players in this <laughs> uh, in this round, but I got a kick out of seeing that uh, that little uh, tweet by uh, by Max. So... Well, John, as John Rom said last week, right? He it's their retirement fund. Yeah, listen, my four hundred one k look like now. Right. Well, listen, the um, you know, uh, Rory, Justin Thomas, John Rom. Uh, it sounds like Corin, uh, Colin Morikawa today came out strong in support of the tour again, but so have a couple other players before before they had announced. So we're going to have to see. It's going to be a little crazy. Hey, want to talk a little about some big sponsorship deals that have come out recently? What do you got? Um, you and I obviously both come from that world. So uh, it's nice to highlight these every once in a while. Well, first of all, Little Caesars in the NFL, they have run through every pizza chain pretty much at this point. We'll see maybe what's next. But uh, after Papa John's weird exit um, <laughs> and then Pizza Hut taking over for them, they've signed Little Caesars um, as the official pizza of the NFL. Um, so, you know, a, a, a big get. I mean, pizza obviously goes hand in hand with uh, with watching football on Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays, Thursdays. Um, so, uh, it's a category, obviously they, they want to fill. And, you know, I think little Caesars has, uh, has always, you know, been around and, and this is a, this is a big step up. Obviously they have big sponsorship relations in the city of Detroit, um, and, uh, and various other things, but this is, uh, this is a good get for, for Rene Anderson's team over there, uh, to make sure that that category doesn't go unfilled. Um, the NHL signed Caterpillar. Yeah, no, Caterpillar doing some big things. Guys. You mentioned them recently in a show about MLS uh, and now doing an NHL deal. Shout out to Max Paulson and Jason Jazzieri of the of the NHL for, for helping to uh, bring these folks in, uh, obviously, along with uh, our former guest, Keith Wachtel. Um, but, you know, this is a you know, this is a huge. Get big brand, big company, great American company. Um, and you know, it looks like they're going to be involved in all kinds of programs. So, uh, uh, nice to see these more traditional categories kind of get back in and do some big things, especially since we're, 
seeing the crypto um, sponsorship stuff look a little scarier and scarier by the minute. Yeah, two things about Caterpillar. Number one, you know, second big sort of uh, traditional uh, stick and ball or ball sport sponsorship. Um, whereas in the past, really, they were NASCAR with uh, Childress and, and uh, they were on the 31 car with our past guest, right. Jeff Burton. Um, so it's interesting to see them going into those sports where there's not maybe as much of a B2B play as there is in NASCAR. Not to say there isn't a B2B play with those sponsorships. That's number one. Number two is I think 70% of, of economists surveyed believe that we're going to be going into a recession in the next couple of years. And construction and heavy equipment is very dependent on the overall health of the economy for their business. So interesting to see them making these uh, investments as we're going towards what many believe uh, will be a downturn in the economy. So, uh, you know, maybe they know something that uh, 70% of the economists don't know because they, I'm sure they have their own uh, experts there. But, you know, there is, uh, as an economics major, you know, I find this joke funny that uh, they said economists have uh, correctly predicted um, five of the last three uh, recessions. So, um, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, another category that uh, that uh, is pretty recession proof is the uh, alcoholic beverage categories now. And jumping back to the NFL, they've signed Gallo in the wine category. So now that's a three way split. Uh, AB has the beer and hard seltzer. Uh, Diageo has the liquor category, and now uh, Gallo has um, has wines, which is a which I think is a, a big get. I also want to. Um, give another shout out here to a former Van Wagner colleague of mine, Justin Bowe, uh, who is now at E&J Gallo and was very involved in uh, in, in uh, these negotiations with the NFL. Wow, you are dropping names left and right. I'm, you are one of the best in this business at making sure that you um, highlight those people that have you've been around, you've worked with, you've done good business with that are nice people. And you do it every week. And I, I don't think I can say it enough. That's an awesome thing that you do every, well, every Friday. Um, and so, you know, on this show, when I see something that's cool or some someone that I'm happy for, uh, I figure why not shout it out? And, and honestly, on things like these sponsorship deals, anybody out there listening, um, if you have something that you want to have highlighted, shoot us a note on LinkedIn or on Twitter or just drop us an email or text. Uh, and uh, and we'd be happy to chat about it if we think it rises to yeah you know, to our level to our of level of great importance. program and sponsorship. Well, you listen. Uh, no, I think what you do is very nice as well because I, I honestly I've I've been on the brand side where I probably got more credit than I deserve for deals, and I've been on the agency side where we have uh, you know as as we uh, we know we do we sort of sit in the background. And oftentimes don't get any credit um, for deals where we put in a significant amount of work on behalf of our clients. So it's really nice that you call out people who who have put that work in because, you know, you know, as well as anybody and better than most, getting to yes in a sponsorship deal can be fraught with a lot of uh, roadblocks and potholes. And um, and so just even getting a deal done is is an accomplishment. So it's, it's great that you call these people out for what they've accomplished. Well, I, I agree. And thank you for saying that. I think it is interesting because based on the things that you were saying a few minutes earlier regarding the uh, potential coming recession is there's a lot of people that are 
squeamish about spending now. We know what happens to marketing and particularly sponsorship spending. While everything, there was kind of a gravy train and, and the properties I think were, uh, you know, were on this great bandwagon, uh, particularly with new uh, sports betting money coming in. And then of course the crypto money coming in and everybody started ex accepting the crypto sponsorships to major naming rights deals in major U.S. cities in Los Angeles and, um, and Miami, um, league deals, uh, event deals. And now, you know, they're pulling out of negotiations, um, these, these big yeah. companies and, and whether they're, you know, whether the value of these things was tied up in crypto or not, uh, because the, the market on these things has just crashed. Listen, the whole market has been, uh, you know, obviously in upheaval, um, but but the crypto category, um, you know, an unregulated currency basically is um, is 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 scary. So listen, it's going to be something we're going to continue to talk about as we have in the past because it's important because a lot of money was coming coming into the properties from from this very new and untested category. Yeah, well, you know, I think we said on an earlier episode, oftentimes when things appear too good to be true. It's because they're not right. And we've right. lived through Enron and AmeriQuest and CGI Stadium and Sponge Tech. And as the great philosopher Cyrus once said, they come in like a wrecking ball. Right. Um, and but then they 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 leave just as just as damaged. Um, but it's interesting. Every research report I've seen indicates that those companies that continue to market through a recession do better coming out of the recession in terms of revenue, in terms of stock performance and things like that. But yet we will say if we do go into a recession, I, you know, I'm not shy about making predictions. We will see a softening in the sponsorship right. market, right. at least in certain categories. Hey, listen, anyone that is rushing off to their Wikipedia to look for the great Roman or Greek philosopher Cyrus, he was referring to Miley Cyrus um, there, um, who, who I think said it all in the great song, Wrecking Ball. I think it's time for a break. We are going to welcome a very exciting guest uh, for the show. Uh, stick around. We'll be right back. It's time for our guest. So we are beyond thrilled to introduce today's guest, Kathy Engelbert, a successful business executive that since 2019 has led the WNBA as the league's commissioner. Prior to taking the helm at the WNBA, Kathy served as the CEO of Deloitte, one of the most respected global professional services firms. You know, we had wanted to book Kathy for several reasons, including the amount of news surrounding the WNBA and women's sports in general, but also because as we mentioned earlier in the show, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX, and we wanted to have an executive that could reflect on the law from a number of perspectives. So Kathy, welcome to the chat. Yeah, thanks, David and Tim. I really appreciate it. So let's jump right in. Um, as we approach the midway of point of the WNBA season, the 26th for the league, um, where would you place the state of the league and what, um, what are you looking to accomplish in the second half of the season? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's some great momentum around women's sports right now, and the W we're leading around that. I think it's in a we're in a really good place. Even though, I mean, it was reflected the other day the challenges that we faced the past two seasons during the pandemic. Since we're a summer sport, obviously we got hit hard in 2020, had to play our shortened season in the bubble, and then last year most of the cities in which we play, like LA and Seattle, New York, we didn't have fans till coming off the Olympic break. So. 
um, but big positive trends as we headed to Chicago and Phoenix for the WNBA finals last year. And now huge positive trends as we head to our all-star break in Chicago in a little bit here. But again, I mean, viewership strong, lots of positive trends. Our players are becoming more known. Um, we'll have uh, more exposure on national platforms this year with 160 games. That's an all-time high record in our 26 years now on national platforms. And, you know, so things are good. I mean, second half of the season, we've got some exciting uh, storytelling to do around um, the kind of changing of the guard a little bit with Sue Bird just having announced she's retiring. Sylvia Fowles earlier of the Minnesota Lynx uh, announcing she, this is her last season but some incredible rookies in the league like Shakira Austin and Ryan Howard and others. So um, really just a great kind of messaging. And um, I'm excited also about our Commissioner Cup Championship, which we've had um, the two teams clinch at this point, the Las Vegas Aces and Chicago Sky, but you know they still got to play a couple more games to determine who's going to host the game. So um, really excited about that as well. And you, Kathy, you mentioned the, the upcoming All-Star game. It's going to be uh, All-Star weekend, July 8th through 10th in, in Chicago. What can fans look forward to um, during the uh, during the All-Star break? Yeah, so Chicago is actually hosting uh, for the first time on, and on the heels of Candace Parker being a free agent, coming to Chicago, winning the championship last year for the Chicago Sky. Um, so it's going to be a, a great weekend. Um, we're holding the day before in the lead-in. That's when the three-point competition, the skills competition, we're holding some WNBA live events. Think of more of a festival around food and music. Um, you know, outdoor Chicago, a great place to be in July. Um, and, um, you know, obviously our Mountain Dew three-point contests, our skills challenge, ESPN will televise that on Saturday. That'll be from across the street from Wintrust Arena. Uh, where the Nike Tournament of Champions and the girls Nike Nationals will be. So we'll have lots of young girls looking up to hopefully their future in the WNBA. And then, of course, the game on, on Sunday. So really excited to feature the best talent, not just in our league, but in the world. Chicago, one of a three or four towns I call my hometown, which I get a lot of grief for, and rightfully <laughs> so. But Chicago did a great job on the uh, NBA All-Star uh, Week in horrendously cold weather. So hopefully these heat waves don't hit you, but I know they'll do a great job for you. And hopefully uh, you'll, you'll have a great opportunity to play in front of great basketball fans there in, in Chicago. Um, recently, uh, Kathy, you were instrumental in leading a successful fundraising effort for WNBA and made a fairly significant news in the sports business world. Can you talk about how that money will be used to grow the WNBA and women's basketball overall? Yeah. So for those, maybe some of your listeners who aren't familiar with why you raise capital, I mean, it's a... Um, I came into the league. We have a lot to transform around a digital transformation, around globalizing the game, around marketing. And so, you know, I said it would be nice to have some capital to do that. So, uh, and again, when I joined the league, we hit the pandemic. And then obviously those were tough years on our owners as well. So we're coming off of, I think, a, an incredible season last year, our 25th, um, the longest tenured women's professional sports league in the uh, U.S., uh, double any other. So it was time. I had confidence that we could raise this capital and use it really to grow the game um, and grow uh, so many different revenue streams that we needed to invest in and transform the valuation model for women's sports. That again, coming in from a long 30 plus year career in business, I didn't know that the valuation that women's sports were just a microcosm of broader society where a lot of women's call it assets are undervalued, like our media rights, like a think a patch on the uniform, a placement on the court. So 
this capital is going to be deployed to make sure that we disrupt the valuation model, we grow some revenue streams, we get into innovative things, whether it's sports betting or NFTs or optical tracking and integrate that into our broadcast or globalize the game and make these um, stars global stars versus U.S. stars. So as you can see, lots of areas to deploy this capital and it'll take three to five years to really transform the league to where at least I see it really thriving for the next 25 but we definitely are going from survive to thrive and this capital is going to help us do that that's great can't wait to see the continued growth and success uh you ran a a, a global professional services firm before taking on the, the role of commissioner are there any similarities in in running a a women's basketball league and running a global professional services what's the biggest difference and what, what are some of the things that you've drawn upon um, as you've taken on this new role over the last few years? Yeah, it's a fabulous question. So I went from a leading a firm of 100,000 employees to a league with 144 players. And you may think that's really different. But one thing I learned as soon as I got in, um, sports is, is business, big business, big business is about relationships. And that's what this is all about with attracting new sponsors like we have, new partners, attracting new media rights deals, things like that. So the stakeholders are definitely the different thing, um, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, and a union workforce versus non-union and that kind of stuff. But I, I really think the business side is why I was hired was to come in and transform the business model, the economic model, to build an economic model that works, that where we can lead to better player benefits and pay and things like we did in the progressive CBA we signed when I first came into the league. But um, you know, but, it, it, you know, business is all about collaborating, relationships. Um, you know, it was really helpful to have my business background when we had to do all the scenario planning around when the pandemic hit. You know, it was like, where are we going to play? Are we going to play regionally? Are we going to play in our arenas with or without fans? And we didn't know it would still be talking about COVID two years later. So, um, so again, I think that scenario plan planning came in handy. And I'll never forget when I we first hit the pandemic, I'm like, all right, what are we got to have five scenarios, we're gonna start working on them. And people are like scenario planning, like, I don't think we had to do that before. So that's a capability we brought in. And, um, you know, now we're off and running. So differences in your stakeholder group, 12 different ownership groups, um, things like that. But um, referees, fans, like I go to I'm on my 12 city tour right now. And I I meet with you know the media when I get in market. I meet with fans. That's a different stakeholder, the fan for sure, than I'm used to. Um, but uh, all good. And obviously the players being uh, came in. I said our number one strategy is to be player first, but also to transform the league. So that's what we've been doing. You know, Tim and I are so tight on this program that we often, when someone says great question, we defer the credit to the person that asked the question. But in this case, partly because I'm such a fan of Deloitte and I've done some work on the Deloitte uh, USOPC business in the past, um, I want to make sure that I take credit for that question <laughs> because I, I want to know your thoughts. I was on. Uh, <laughs> I was about to give you the credit. I, I I was I was kind of waiting. I gave you a second or two there, and and I didn't see you going for it. So yeah, I had you're you're in. one of those guys who doesn't even wait to beep your horn when the light turns green <laughs> to the guy in front of you. Oh man, Tim, I have a feeling you're going to get him back someday. <laughs> oh, he gets me back all the time. It might it might be before you sign off, Kathy. We'll have to see. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've talked we've talked about this several times already, but this is an important week. It's the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which of course is the landmark 1972 legislation that prohibited sex-based discrimination in any school or uh, uh, other education program receiving government funding. 
What we'd like to know is, is your take on the legacy of Title IX and specifically what it has meant for sports organizations such as the WNBA. Um, and then and then at the end of that, talk about where you still think there, there are some uh, gaps, some things that uh, that we need to see fulfilled through the promise of Title IX. Yeah, um, well framed. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, obviously, I'm going to be very blunt. The WNBA wouldn't be the longest standing women's sports league in the U.S. without Title IX. Um, if you think about it, um, pre-Title IX, one in 27 girls played organized sports, youth girls, and now it's one in five. Um, that's a pretty impressive statistic. And also, I mean, one thing I've been reflecting on this week is in 1972, no one ever dreamed that this 37-word clause tucked inside a new education legislation would have such a profound impact on women's sports and alter it, I think, forever. And that massive shift, if you think about it, was an accident because nowhere in the law did the word sports or athletics or even physical education appear. Um, but as you said, it was meant to uh, address the vast gender inequality and sex discrimination in education. And at that time, because I, when I went to Lehigh, it was only, I was only the 10th class of women in 1982, but in 72, I mean, college student bodies and faculties were still majority male. And in 1970, just 59% of women in the US graduated from high school and just 8% at college degrees. So, but back to sports, um, I think um, the fact that it helped us grow and develop the game for young women at the grassroots level uh, is enormous. 6.6 .6 million girls, six to 17 years old today, playing basketball in the US, and 91% of those began before the age of 15. But you asked about what work do we have to do? Enormous work with the undervaluation of women's sports, uh, the dropout rate of young girls when they get to their 13, 14 years of age versus their male counterparts. We've got to figure out why is that happening? Um, do they have enough role models? The adage, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Do we have enough role models? Are we um, with less than 5% of all media sports coverage covering women's sports? Are we showing the women professional athletes of today as much as we showing the men so that girls stay in sports? So Definitely still a lot of progress to do um, to make. And I would say, you know, for the WNBA's part, it's around the valuation model and making sure that we uh, can work with youth sports programs uh, as we do with our Her, Her Time to Play initiative and make sure that we're providing a platform for girls to, you know, when they get done school, they have, um, you know, activities to do. And not everyone needs to be an athlete. So I grew up in the 70s playing sports. I ended up playing three sports in high school and two in college, basketball and lacrosse. But there wasn't a soccer program, for instance, when I grew up. So I never played soccer, even though I would have loved to have done that. So I think um, we're seeing, uh, again, obviously a lot more participation. You look at women CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, they all played organized sports practically since, you know, at least through high school, if not at the collegiate level. So there's something that sports brings that Title IX helped with around confidence and resilience and women leaders. And I look at young girls today and say, they are the next generation of leaders um, and diverse leadership in this country. So it's really important that we we continue the, the, the fight for equity and equality in, in women's sports. To say that the pandemic disrupted professional sports or sports, all sports would be a gross understatement, but you go back to two plus years now and you look forward and, and women's sports in general and the WNBA in particular has really seen a, a heightened interest from fans, from media, um, uh, 
other stakeholders. Is there anything you can point to or things you can point to that lead to that yeah. that change and that, that heightened interest that we hopefully will continue for for the foreseeable future? Yeah, it's an interesting question because when I came into the league, um, the uh, women's soccer national team had just come off the World Cup win. There was a lot of popularity of women's sports, generally more individual sports like tennis and even golf, but not so much team sports like basketball. And I think, you know, we've got we got a little lift off that. And also, I think, um, you know, if you think about the NCAA game, um, women's basketball, hugely popular at the NCAA level. They had amazing ratings in the final four this year. And um, obviously they didn't have in 20, but last year as well. And just the athletes and, and, you know, quite frankly, just exposure. It's about exposure. It's around marketing. It's around storytelling. I always said, if we can build a couple rival, really great rivalries and, and build uh, household names into players, that's how you get, um, you know, a lot more success in sports and, and now it's through social media and traditional media and short form content and all the whole media landscapes being disrupted, as you both know. So um, so it's interesting to think about how women can take the place. And then the even the nil situation with the NCAA, which I know a lot of people aren't that happy with. When I looked at the elite eight basketball teams this year, both men and women's side, the top five nil athletes, four out of five were women. Um, basketball. So it's providing opportunity for women basketball players too. So, you know, it's something that, you know, again, I think we'll continue to watch. We'll continue to see how we can integrate those players in. But I think the popularity of the game and the popularity of women's sports. And one last point around the business community, every business, as you know, has a diversity, equity, and inclusion platform as part of what they're doing for their internal workforce. I know because I used to sit on the other side where we were doing a lot around women and underrepresented groups in our um, employee group. So that's another reason everybody wants to, if you want to put your money where your mouth is, support women's sports because you're, you have these DE&I programs within your company. So I think it's a combination of all of that. Obviously, there's been challenges and there still is, but you know we've uh, benefited from some of those factors. If I could hook on that, um... With that growing popularity, what would you say to brands out there considering their next sponsorship investment and why they should be looking at the WNBA or women's sports in general? Yeah, and one of the first things I ask uh, brands that we meet with is, you know, what I try to listen to what what business issues are you tr trying to solve in your business? How are you trying to grow your consumer base? What I'll call our fan base, but what they call their consumer base and and usually they say, oh, we want it, we want, we want, we need some younger digital native consumers buying our product. Up, oh, check, we've got that. We skew younger and more digital native, more urban, more diverse, more women. So when they say, oh, we need more women, we know 80% of the purchasing power in a US household right now is made or influenced by a woman. So if you want to grow your business on the consumer uh, business side, you need more women to be paying attention to your products. Oh, yep, WNBA would be good for that. So you try to match, uh, but you do have to listen. You have to ask the right questions. You have to listen to these brands, what they're trying to solve in their businesses. Um, we just signed US Bank as a WNBA change maker. Obviously, they're doing a lot of work in the community around you know, financial savvy of women and underrepresented groups. You know that, that plays very well with some of the WNBA players platforms and and how what how that how they're so socially conscious and community minded 
Um, so, you know, you look for matches and you look for people who you think would, would share the values of how you're trying to drive the WNBA to higher heights. And that's what we've been doing with these brands. The Brittany Griner situation continues to be in the news, maybe even more so the U.S. government now classifies that as a as her being wrongfully detained. Can you give us an update on on efforts that the league is making in conjunction with the NBA and the government? Yes, um, obviously it remains a, a complex situation, an unimaginable one for BG. Uh, he's one of the greatest players in the world to ever play the game and such a kind person. And so every day uh, we're working on this in some way, very complex if you think of it legally, geopolitically, diplomatically, no matter where you turn, it's complex given um, the invasion in Ukraine and just the situation diplomatically between the US and Russia. Um, so um, we're trying to recognize uh, Brittany Griner every way we can. Her initials and jersey numbers are on, featured on all the sidelines of all 12 courts. We're doing some philanthropic initiative to carry on the work she would be doing if she was here. Uh, and then um, really you saw NBA players during the NBA finals wearing a warm-up shirt with Brittany Griner on it. So we're trying to find every way we can to make sure she's staying top of mind, not only in our league, but you know, with the US government. Been working with the State Department, I'll just add, you know, or conclude with it's it's complex and, um, you know, it's it's not easy. And um, we were pleased that she was designated wrongfully detained, and now her case is being worked on by the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs. So we never thought these are the things you deal with as a sports league, but this is what comes your way. You have to deal with it. You have to be, you know, really thoughtful about how you engage with the government and make sure that we can get an answer here to get her home as quickly, but but most importantly, safely. Yes, good continued good luck with that. So, so important for us to keep the attention on, on her situation. So before we let you go, Kathy, we have two questions that we like to ask all our guests. So if you can indulge us for one more minute. First of all, how did you get your start in business and, and what uh, what role did being a two sport athlete at Lehigh play in terms of, um, you know, uh, how you went about your job search and how employers looked at you when you when you came out of school? Where'd your career get started? Where'd you start yeah, it was interesting because when I came out of Lehigh, I, uh, I again was from a family of eight kids, five brothers, played sports my whole life. My father, a little known fact, my father was actually drafted by the Detroit Pistons in 1957 into the NBA. Um, salaries weren't quite there. I think it was $950, <laughs> his, uh, his first year contract with the Pistons. And he went on to a career at RCA for a lot more money, by the way. <laughs> I, you know, times were different back then. But you know, so for me, it was, you know, I, I went to Lehigh, I was actually going to be in engineering or computer science. And, um, and someone told me about this, you know, business school, and, you know, you'll definitely get a job. And, you know, there were these big eight firms back then, accounting and consulting firms, and, and I switched to business and then um, to accounting and went on to a 33 year career there at Deloitte. So I was happy that I made that switch. I'm sure computer science would have been great too. And obviously with today, that being a great profession, but um, but definitely being a two sport athlete at Lehigh, I was actually recruited for lacrosse. I was a walk on for basketball 
under first year coach Muffet McGraw at the time. Wow. wow. Yeah. Wow. A, obviously big success at Notre Dame after she coached us for four years, I think stayed another year or two at Lehigh and then went and turned the Notre Dame program around the extent of two national championships and induction to Naismith Hall of Fame. So, I mean, I look back now and I didn't know any of this back then, but I, I think being in sports taught me huge lessons of kind of resilience, how to lose, how to pick yourself up, how to, you know, how to, how to take risks. I mean, that's number one. Like I was pretty shy coming out of high school into college, but you know, sports, you, you take risks in, in, in the sport and, and you learn to lose and win gracefully, hopefully. And, you know, it all helped my transition. So then 33 years later, when someone told me about the WNBA job being open, I was like, hmm, I wanted to do something different, something with a broad women's leadership platform and something I had a passion for and given my DNA from my father and my five brothers. And, you know, this sounded like a pretty good thing. So that's that's my story in a nutshell. Well, the league is very lucky to have you. Last question um, for those listening. What piece of advice do you have for people, whether they're breaking into the sports business or, or business in general? Yeah, I'd say it's a marathon, not a sprint. And you have to have what I always call the three C's, confidence, courage, and curiosity. Everything's changing so quickly in sports and in media and in social media platforms, technology. So if you're confident, you have courage to make decisions and take risks and remain curious about how everything's evolving, you'll be successful. So that's the advice advice I give often is um, really important, especially for young women where I see a big confidence gap. So um, I always talk about confidence and that's something that sports definitely gave me as a young professional was a lot of confidence. I actually played in my, uh, right when I graduated from Lehigh, I played in an all men's Philadelphia basketball league on Sunday mornings. <laughs> so if you ever wanted to get confidence, that might not be the place to do it. But. Well, it certainly showed courage. Yes, that definitely showed courage, but yeah, so um, all, all fun and good, but you know, hopefully these players out on the court today with the WNBA are providing that kind of confidence uh, to uh, future future girls and then future leaders in society. So that's the goal. Terrific. Great stuff. By the way, I, I don't have my We Are BG shirt yet, but I'm I'm wearing my orange in solidarity with uh, with the league and, and with you. So um, and with her. So well, good luck David, with all thank that. Thank you. Thank you so much for all your support. We really appreciate it. And it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully get Brittany home and we'll have, you know, a great rest of our 26 seasons. So thank yeah. you so much. And thank good you. luck in Chicago. Thank you. Hope to see you. We'll, and we'll get you, we'll get you some W swag. Oh, nice. We can't thank you enough. Good luck with everything. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to, uh, seeing how the rest of the season progresses. All right, DP and McGee, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy. All right, take care, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you again to our great guest, Kathy Engelbert. Sometimes I, I honestly, I pinch myself, David, that we are so fortunate to get such luminaries from the sports industry who are willing to come on and talk to us and uh, you know we'll do our part going forward on on keeping attention focused on Brittany Griner um, everybody should um, the fact that it's not a bigger story um, sometimes it really amazes me but uh, but we we will do what we can but uh, a, a great guest um, and a great commissioner doing great things in, in a league that continues to grow
So what's uh, what what are you looking forward to? What's what's on your mind for the next week or so? Yeah, I mean, just I just want to follow up quickly on that. I agree. She's in, in she's in an important position at an important time, and a variety of things are are coming at her. But for someone that obviously lived it as an athlete and then is able to, uh, after a very successful career with a very major company in Deloitte, uh, to take this on um, because it was something of passion, I, I think says a lot. So uh, I do want to thank Gary Placino for his help in uh, getting this, uh, getting Kathy on the show, as well as uh, Dina Skokas, VP of WNBA Communications for organizing. So thank you. So well, this Gary, week, Gary Placino, our first guest, continues Gary, to pay dividends. It, right, <laughs> right. The guy who who famously called us uh, our little podcast. That little, little podcast. Yeah, well, look who we podcast. had as a guest on our little podcast. But Gary. we still love Gary for <laughs> yes, sure. We do. So I'm very interested to see what's going to happen this week on the on the live golf stuff. I, I don't want to treat this subject as though we're beating a dead horse because it's just not a dead horse. It's a very live one right. um, that gets more interesting all the time. And Jay Monahan has a really big week uh, ahead of him. So by the time we record the show next week, uh, there will probably be some significant developments uh, on this, whether that's player announcements um, or further partnerships that are formed with the DP World Tour or uh, any of the majors, I think we'll have to see, or some sort of capitulation because um, it continues to get crazy. The other thing, and not to you know overly promote my band, but I have another gig this weekend, believe it or not. Oh, so uh, right. Where are you guys the, playing? The, the Fez is going to be down outside of Philadelphia area to... Um, we're down to the point where we only play our own charitable endeavors uh, or people's uh, big time birthdays. Uh, and so we are playing a birthday. Basically, we're playing a birthday party. Um, but hopefully there'll be enough people there to feel like we just didn't come to DJ at a, at a birthday party. But listen, it's always great to get together with my with my friends and play some music for people that are very appreciative. And uh, and we and we love playing. So uh, for those listening, do you also do bar mitzvahs and and retirement parties and so forth well we yes we do and we've never really turned anything down um uh, unfortunately your band is great I, your un- band is great thank I've, you. I've watched well, the videos on facebook and the fez for those of you unfortunately the, the only time we've ever actually played a paid gig was the most that was the most disastrous gig we ever had so we actually <laughs> eschew um doing paid gigs um but we do have music on spotify and stuff and it would be nice if people listen to it because we could make some money that way but um but you know hey it's uh it's not just as as the fez just isn't quite as powerful as the global impact of wait what so what about you i'm gonna be continuing to watch baseball as it heats up you see uh you know teams that may have been written off in certain circles um the braves and the phillies coming on um, given the Mets a run for their money in the East and um, the Yankees continue to play well. It's uh, it, it could still turn out to be his, an historic year for them uh, as a Yankee fan. I would be very happy to see that. Um, and uh, you know, some great individual stories, you know, Otani uh, mm-hmm. eligible for, um, for arbitration one more year, Aaron judge, his decision to turn down a, a seven year, 30, 0.5 million per year contract is looking smarter and smarter every day. Although he has had a history of getting injured, but uh, you know, he and his agent look smarter as each series goes by. He's cooled off a little bit, but um, 
I, this is the time of year where I really just enjoy watching, uh, you know, baseball on a on a sunny or a rainy afternoon, whatever it happens to be. I hear so, you. I hear you. So with that, this is the time where we close out the show. Um, we want to thank uh, our guest again one last time, Kathy Engelberg from the WNBA. Most of all, we want to thank you, our listeners. Um, please um, feel free to share us, um, give us feedback, like us on Twitter and LinkedIn, if you happen to see us. But um, with that, I'm McGee. He's DP. And we'll say uh, goodbye until next week. 